0: We pray, Father, that the Spirit of the Lord would hover over this meeting and apply each and every principle of Thine eternal Word to each and every need of each and every heart. Dear Father, we know that only You are sufficient for such things. We're not sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who's made us able ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter that killeth, but of the Spirit that giveth life, the Spirit that quickeneth. And Father, I pray that your Spirit would take your word and quicken the hearts of your people, Lord. Revive them in the midst of the year. Stir up their pure minds by way of remembrance, Lord Jesus Christ. Visit your people, Lord Jesus Christ, with a word in due season that's able to lighten their load, Father, and and to provoke them to love and further good works. We ask this, Father, and we thank you for doing this work in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 17, the Lord Jesus Christ is praying a prayer that we do well to emulate. He's praying for his own. He recognizes that he's going back to those ivory palaces, those mansions on high. He's going to prepare a place for his bride, but he's leaving his bride in the midst of perilous surroundings, a Christ-hating, unsympathetic world, and he knows that the danger... He knows of the danger that will beset those who are being left behind. And so He has a concern for them. He has begun a good work in him, them according to Philippians 1.6. We know that Jesus spent three and a half years training this special band of disciples whom He sent forth as an, as apostles. There were many other disciples of Jesus, but, but these twelve were disciples in the most excellent sense of that word, because they were brought into proximity to Jesus Christ by divine call and prepared to perpetuate the work that He began. Now, we know that He finished the work of redemption. We're not saying that they would have any, any part in completing a work of redemption because the work of a redemption was completed at the cross. He's obtained eternal redemption for us through the blood of His cross. And when he said it is finished, the work of redemption was forever finished. And we can praise the Lord for that finished work. But the propagation of the gospel had only begun. And Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, but he also commissioned those who believed on him, this band of disciples whom he called apostles and sent forth on preaching tours in Galilee. They were to continue the work of propagating the gospel of the kingdom that he began. And so uh, they were especially dear to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in a closer proximity to Jesus Christ. And even within that grouping of 12, there was a set of three that were especially close to the Lord Jesus Christ. uh, Peter, James, and John. And we see them uh, brought into proximity to Christ. For instance, we see them at the Mount of Transfiguration. And we see them at the... Uh, the, resurrection, uh, uh, of the, dead, uh, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. We see the three, Peter, James, and John. We see them with with him there, uh, the twelve in the agonies of Gethsemane, but we see that, that there were three that were singled out as being those who would bear the burden of the early church, Peter, James, and John. And interestingly, Uh, It's very interesting that James, the brother of John, was martyred very early in in the church's history after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Then later in Acts chapter 12, after the Judean ministry had begun of Peter, we see that James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, was uh, beheaded. He was beheaded. And so he was one of the church's early martyrs. He wasn't the first martyr as far as we can tell. According to Acts 7, Stephen was the first martyr of the church. But James was was killed quite early. Isn't it interesting that Jesus chose someone to become a pillar in the church who was slain at a very early, early stage in the church's work of ministry? I find that interesting. You know, God's ways are not our ways. And His thoughts are not our thoughts. And as the heavens are high above the earth, so much higher are his thoughts than our thoughts and his ways than our ways. You know, the natural man, the natural man, and the natural way of thinking and calculating would suggest that you would appoint someone to be a pillar in the church, that is, someone who would be a a supporting personage in the church, someone who by their weight and influence would uh, set the direction for the church. You would appoint someone who would have a rather uh, durable or lasting ministry, but here we see the Lord Jesus appointing someone that he knew was going to be martyred at an early stage in the church's history. And, of course, James was martyred, and after he was martyred, there was another James who more or less replaced James the son of Zebedee in among the pillars of the church there in Jerusalem. And this was James, the Lord's half-brother, who had been brought up with Jesus and who had not believed on Jesus during his period of ministry. Isn't that interesting? But he came later to believe on Jesus Christ. In fact, as far as we know, it was after Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Uh, the Lord appeared to James, to the brethren of the Lord, and he appeared to James, and, and James became one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. And Paul speaks of them as, as pillars in the book of Galatians when he went up to Jerusalem, and he saw those who seemed to be somewhat, but as far as... Paul was concerned, it doesn't make any difference to God what men seem to be. And Paul, in his characteristic uh, independent zeal for the glory and honor of God alone, uh, does not respect the face of persons, regardless of what they're calling. Yes, he perceived uh, that they were called in the apostleship before him, and he had due respect for them, but he knew that he had likewise been called and commissioned of the resurrected Jesus Christ, as one, one born out of due season, and so what I'm suggesting to you brothers and sisters is that the Lord Jesus Christ had a special a special attachment, a special call, a special commission, a special burden, a special concern for this band of disciples because they were going to become the core group, the nucleus if you please, of a larger group of believers who are going to carry on and perpetuate that which Jesus Christ began. And so not only do we have the grouping of the twelve here under consideration, but we have also that special set of the inner circle of the three, Peter, James, and John, one of which we know was was martyred at an early stage in, in church history. And so what we're saying is the Lord Jesus Christ recognized that as it went with this group of twelve, and in particular the three, so it would go with the ongoing work of the expansion of the kingdom of God upon earth. In other words, he recognized that their stability was the key to the church's progress. Their stability was the key to the church's progress. And if they were to become soon shaken and troubled and to abandon their faith then the work of God would come to naught so to speak now we know that it couldn't of course in the eternal counsels of God but the point is that Jesus had a concern, it was not going to take place automatically and that's another thing we see about the importance of prayer as outlined here in John chapter 17 we see that, that God's work always is instigated by prayer, that things do not take place automatically. All of the subjects that were on the heart of Jesus Christ as He makes intercession for His own here in John chapter 17 were works of God, further works of God, that do not take place apart from prayer and earnest prayer. For instance, He prays for their safekeeping or their preservation. And He prays for their sanctification. He prays for their unification. And He prays for their ultimate glorification. All of these are things that take place as a result of, of intercession. And He ever lives, according to Hebrews 7, verse 25, to make intercession for us. Jesus recognizes that the work of the Lord is going to progress or it's going to be hindered on the basis of the spiritual stability of those for whom he's praying right now, because they constitute a core element, a core group, a nucleus that is going to become the springboard for God's further work in the world. For instance, we see that he envisioned a great harvest of souls as a result of these individuals' testimonies. Look at verse 20 of John 17, "...neither pray I for these alone... But for them also which shall believe on me through their word. In other words, he's anticipating an an grafting of the Gentiles. He's anticipating a great influx of souls, an innumerable company out of every king, out of every kingdom and tongue and nation and people. He's anticipating the universal advancement of the gospel and spread of the gospel to the four corners of the earth. And He knows it's going to take place through these individuals. And so we need to recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ is not only saving you and forgiving you and cleansing you and placing you, baptizing you by one Spirit into one body, simply for your own eternal salvation's sake. Now, yes, He is saving us, from eternal hell, we could be glad of that, but we need to remember that he saves us with a purpose in mind He saves us in view of his using us as vessels unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, so that the Word of God can be furthered, so that the house of God can be furthered, so that the work of God can be uh, promoted, and unless we keep that in view, we we become rather introspective and and sometimes self-serving in our church-related religion. God has saved us not simply to sit and, on a pew and to go home and enjoy Sunday afternoon dinners and then go back to work the next week. God has saved us in order to propagate the gospel, in order to sound out the Word of the Lord in all of this region, in order to preach the gospel to every creature, in order to broadcast what we've heard in darkness, to speak it in the light, and what we've heard in the ear in closets, to proclaim it in the broad daylight. God has called us, brothers and sisters, not to hide our light under a bushel, but to make known to all men the glad tidings of eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our calling. And Jesus Christ recognized that these individuals were, were called... Disciples, they were disciples indeed, yes, with all of their faults and all of their flaws and all of their bungling efforts sometimes to understand and apprehend the true meaning of Jesus Christ's words and the meaning of His kingdom. Yet, in all of that, the Lord Jesus Christ was praying for them that they might be stabilized, so to speak. That they might stand perfect and complete in all the will of God, in every aspect of the will of God. And so he prays for their, their preservation, that they might be kept that the original quality of their consecration might be preserved intact. And then he prays for their sanctification. We've been looking at at sanctification. We gave you a definition of sanctification. We've been looking at uh, the nature of sanctification and the means of sanctification. And we saw that sanctification was... Was through the blood of Jesus Christ, by the spirit of Jesus Christ. It was through the truth of God's word. It was through presentation, to, uh, presentation of our bodies and our members uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. If it, it is through the work of God by faith, as we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we're sanctified through faith which is in Him. But it's also a divine, direct activity that involves. The work of the triune Godhead. It is a profound activity of the divine Godhead. Of the triune Godhead. A profound activity. You see, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all one in their interest to sanctify us wholly. To set us apart, hagiadzo, from everything that is spiritually antithetical and morally out of sympathy with God. The Greek word is hagiazo. Hagiazo means a set-apart. That's God's work. It is God's work. It is, yes, man's responsibility. But only God can sanctify us. It is the Lord that sanctifieth His people. We cannot sanctify ourselves except in a subordinate sense. We certainly have a responsibility to set ourselves apart unto God. But God must do this work because it is a work that begins on the inside. It is a work that begins in the hidden man of the heart. It is a work that commences through the... A reorientation of our thinking and the redirection of our will and affections and the restraint of our carnal impulses. It is something that God does whereby He sets apart our desires. He sanctifies our desires. He gives us a completely different outlook on life. And only God can do this. You see, that is an, an, an inborn miracle. That's a miracle of the new birth and with the regeneration of the soul, there comes a setting apart unto God. Of the the will and the affections and the the entire round of our thought life, the entire um, cycle of thinking that has gripped us in days gone by is broken, and we are are led into a new realm of of thinking, and we begin to evaluate things on a dip from the standpoint of a different criterion. We begin to see life in an altogether different way. This is the result of God's regeneration and sanctification that takes place. And so Jesus is praying, yes, for these who have been washed by the water of the Word, for these who are clean through the Word that Jesus has spoken unto them, He says you need a further work of grace in your lives. And I'm going to further this work, and I'm praying for you that this work might be brought to completion, that you might be sanctified wholly, because this is the key to your preservation. You see, brothers and sisters, we cannot be... Preserved. The original quality of our consecration to Jesus Christ cannot be preserved unless we're set apart from the evil influences of this world. We live in a world that's that's in the hands of Satan. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that Satan is the God of this world. Jesus said in John 14, verse 30, that he is the prince of this world. He's the ruler of this world. He rules this world. Now, God's the over-ruler, and we know that Satan is simply in all of his machinations and ploys and devices is fulfilling the overarching sovereign will of God who is the great ruler of the, ma- of the universe, but we're saying that Satan is the immediate ruler over this fallen world that's under the condemnation of God. Satan is the ruler. He's the God of this world. He's the invi- invisible intelligence behind all of the false religious systems of the world, including apostate Christendom. He's the one that blinds the minds of those who believe not. He's the one that brings a veil of ignorance that hinders individuals from from seeing the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, lest it should shine into our hearts. You see, He erects a veil. He places a veil over the heart and mind of those uh, that believe not, and our gospel is veiled from them. I have to say that even though I was brought up in a religious system, my mind was veiled. My mind was veiled. The gospel was veiled from my view until the Lord took away the veil. And if you want to know what is necessary for the Lord to take away the veil, it's Second Corinthians 3.13. When it, meaning the heart, there's a veil over the heart of the Jews when the law of Moses is read in the synagogue, he says. But when it, that is the heart, turns to the Lord, In repentance, the veil will be taken away. The veil of ignorance is removed. That wrapper, so to speak, that veil, that cloth that hinders your vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is taken away. When you repent, God rends that veil. He takes it away. And brothers and sisters, that's what happened when the Lord saved me. I began to see Christianity in a completely different light. I began to see the discrepancy that existed between the church that I was attending and what the Bible taught about New Testament Christianity. Although I was slow to apprehend, as people that are newly saved so often are, even though I was slow to apprehend, God had patience with me and He began to guide me and lead me and show me the way everlasting, the old paths. is the good way. And one of the first things the Lord began to show me was about the fact that we must follow the Sermon on the Mount. I'm so glad that, that the Lord began to deal with me out of Matthew's gospel after my original conversion. You know, so many people tell new converts to read John's gospel, and I'm all for that. I think you should read any of them. I don't have any preference. I think that probably John's gospel is the most often recommended because it's the gospel of personal interview. And we see... John's interview with Nicodemus by night in John three. We see John's interview with um, Nathaniel, who was a disciple indeed, in whom there was no guile. We find Jesus Christ's interview uh, with uh, the woman at the well in John chapter four, and and on and on. We see that Jesus, the 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 John's interview with the nobleman's the nobleman whose son he healed in John five, I think it is. And, he, this is the gospel of personal interview, and so perhaps many who are seeking to be fishers of men think that John's gospel will, will add a personal note to any young convert's appreciation of Christianity. And, and that's all well and good. I'm not trying to dispute that this evening. But what I'm saying is Matthew's gospel uh, is the gospel of, of discourse. And in Matthew's gospel we have five major blocks of Jesus Christ teaching material that he delivered uh, to his disciples and to his apostles and told them to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. And he said to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And so Christ tells us how his new covenant relates to the Old Testament Commandments. We see how His new covenant relates to the attitudes and the motivations of our heart. We see how that this new covenant brings a radical change in our disposition so that we become pure in heart and we become peacemakers and and we become those who hunger and thirst after righteousness and those who mourn because we're smitten by godly sorrow because... Our works have have not been found perfect before God, and we have fallen short of the moral excellency of God's glory. All have sinned to come short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and verse 23. And So as we read through Matthew's gospel, we see that Jesus says that we're to resist not evil. If anyone smites you on one cheek, to turn to them the other also. They try to smite you again and draw blood. We just turn to them the other also. And He said... Give to him that asketh of thee, and of him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. And if any man compel that he go one mile, go with him twain. Jesus teaches non-self-assertiveness. He teaches non-resistance. He teaches that we should not render evil for evil, but we should ever follow that which is good, as 1 Thessalonians likewise says, both among ourselves and to all men. Jesus teaches these principles. He says this is the the essence of the Christian ethic I'm teaching you. And then at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us after he mentions many things, uh, uh, Mary, his teaching on marriage, we have his, his teaching on uh, personal moral purity, we have his, his teaching on false prophets. We have his teaching on discernment. By their fruits you shall know them. We have his teaching on the doctrine of two ways. Uh, Matthew seven, thirteen, and fourteen. Straight is the gate, it narrows the way that leads to life, and wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. We have his teaching on anger. We have his teaching on um, loving our enemies. You know, most people have difficulty ro- loving their own relatives. I found that in life, that that most people have difficulty loving their own relatives, much less their neighbors, but to love your enemies? Yes, Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Pray for them. Bless them and don't curse them. Uh, Today, well, you'll have a lawsuit on your hands. First, they, people will will sue you over something they even perceived as uh, some attempt that to take advantage of you in the business world, even though the person may not have intended it. They'll sue you over this or that, simply to get money out of it. I mean, that's really I don't. That's a whole other realm. I don't want to get into that. But the the frivolous litigation that takes place today is um, borders on the ridiculous. It really does, but with a superabundance of lawyers, you know, they have to have something to do besides um, sitting on real estate closings. So what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is that we are living in a day and age when people are their love is waxing cold. They hate one another. They despise one another, and and sometimes it's their own relatives. Sometimes it's their neighbor, the person next to them, who lives next to them or sits next to them or who's uh, somehow associated with them at work. But to, and we're told to love our neighbors as ourselves. But Jesus says, I'm taking this a step beyond. It's not just loving your own friends and your own relatives. It's not just loving your neighbor as difficult at that, as that may be at times. He said, I'm telling you to love your enemies. That you might be perfected in love, and as your, he says in Matthew five forty eight, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven, is perfect. Now that doesn't mean that you have to agree with your neighbor, you have to agree with your enemy, that you have to endorse the policies of your enemy, that you have to you know, be like some of these pastors in the church, never take a stand for righteousness and truth and holiness, and never set the direction in the church, and never command and reprove and rebuke. With all long-suffering and doctrine, a lot of pastors think that's love. No, it isn't. It's just weakness, and the devil's going to roll, o- push you over like a steamroller before it's over and flatten you out for everybody to walk on, and, so, and the cause of Christ will suffer damage. God's called pastors to be standard-bearers. They have a standard. They have a banner that is to be displayed because of the truth. They're ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, and they cannot afford to lower or to... Alter in any form the terms of their master. They represent somebody else. You see, they are men under authority. They're set under the authority of Christ who said, All authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, they don't have authorization to alter the terms of biblical conversion and salvation. They don't have any leeway to tamper with the truth of God's Word or to in any way adulterate it or minimize the importance of certain subjects in the Word of God. They have to not refrain or not shun to declare unto you all the counsel of God and keep back nothing that's profitable for you. That's a, that's a solemn calling that they have. You see, anybody that's truly called to preach, if they're truly called to preach, if they, they will be equipped to preach, and with that equipment to preach will be a holy love and zeal for the honor of God alone. And they will seek to speak not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God who tries their heart. So if the message they preach rebukes their family, they'll preach it anyway. If, re- if it rebukes their relatives, they'll preach it anyway. If it rebukes uh, some favored element in the church, they'll preach it anyway. Because God's testing their heart to see if they love Jesus Christ more than any other consideration any other person or any other, any other um, uh, object that's set before them as perhaps uh, worthy of pursuit in the ministry. And so, do you love Jesus Christ more? That's the test of true leadership. Remember, before Jesus sent out Peter, now I know He sent him out in the early days of His ministry, but I'm talking about before He sent him into post-resurrection ministry, what did Jesus ask Peter? Three times he asked him something. What did he ask him? He said, lovest thou me more than these? And then he said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. And so the call to be an overseer over the house of God and to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood, first of all, emanates from a... An exclusive love for Jesus Christ. A love that excludes all other considerations. And the reason why we have so much watered down Christianity, which is no Christianity, it's really just apostate Christendom. The reason why we have such watered down religion in the churches of our day is we have so few shepherds who love Jesus more than these. Who love Jesus Christ more than their life in this world who love Jesus Christ even more than the sheep. They love Him more than the sheep, and so they can feed the sheep and represent Him and be shepherds after His own heart and feed them with knowledge and understanding, as Jeremiah 3.15 says. We have so few today that are willing to take a stand and hold a standard and lift a standard up in in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of, of youth that are tempted and and uh, beset on the left hand and the right hand with youthful lust that they are to told to flee in Second 2 Timothy 2.22. We have so few that are willing to lift a standard, and that's why the church is caving in and capitulating to the surrounding culture, and there's a great influx of evil uh, from this present evil world that is tainting the testimony of the average church member. The reason why is because we have so few standard bearers. But I'm told in Isaiah 59, in verse 19, that when the enemy cometh in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. In the book of Genesis, chapter chapter 6 through 9, when all flesh had corrupted its way upon the face of the earth, when the... Sons of God went into the daughters of men and they produced these monstrosities of evil that were roaming the earth. And the earth was filled with violence. God raised up a standard through one man. He found righteous in his generation. He obtained grace. His name was Noah. See, God did not leave himself without testimony in the midst of that Corrupt, antediluvian world. God is always looking for a man. They may stand in the gap and lift a standard to make up the hedge in order to wall up the wall and keep the enemy from breaching the wall and coming in and infiltrating the people of God. And God raised up a Noah, and God lifted up a testimony, and God lifted up a standard in that generation. And eight people, seven besides himself, rallied around that standard, and they followed Noah right into the ark that had been preparing for 120 years and He moved with fear and prepared an ark for the saving of His house and condemned the world through His faith because nobody else believed that there was going to be a deluge of rain. Nobody else believed that God was going to send judgment. They were eating and drinking and giving in marriage and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away according to Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus said, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man." In other words, in the days just prior to the arrival of Jesus Christ, who will come as a thief in the night, and whose day shall overtake this globe as a snare, shall it come upon all the inhabitants of the earth in the days preceding His arrival. Men and women will have their minds enmeshed in mundane matters. They'll simply be eating and drinking and giving in marriage, and they will not care for spiritual interests. They will not care for a life of prayer. They will not care for a serious and in-depth study of the Word of God. They'll lose their desire for spiritual interest. They'll no longer desire the sincere miracle the Word of God that they might grow thereby. Of The love of the majority will wax cold in the midst of, of the, this present evil age in which we live. We see that happening in our day and age. The people no longer even love their children. Their idea is that you just raise them up to their 18 and send them off to the world and let the world corrupt them. That's the idea. They want to get them out of their hair by the time they're 18 or earlier. Sometimes it's when they're six or five and six, they want to send them to kindergarten to get them out of the house. They don't have natural affection for even their own offspring. That's why they're aborting them. And we have 50 million plus babies that have been, have gone to an early grave in some garbage dump or some incinerator because of the lust of men that care not for their own offspring. And because of the machinations of an organization started by a wicked woman by the name of Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood is the organization. And by the way, you know what this is the anniversary of? This is 2010. In 1960, 50 years ago, the pill, the birth control pill, was approved for usage in the population of the United States of America. Now, it might have been used before that, but it was officially approved for usage. 50-year anniversary. How many babies have been aborted through the birth control pill? Did you know that, that <clears throat> some birth control pills are, are abortifacient? And there could be no guarantee that they aren't abortifacient. That means that they kill babies that have already been conceived in the womb. So if we talk about 50 million plus babies that have been been murdered by the standard procedures of abortion in the United States of America, how many babies have been aborted through the use of the birth control pill? 160 million? We don't know. But brothers and sisters, that blood is crying unto God out of the incinerators, out of the garbage dumps, dumps, out of the medical clinics, from the sheets of the medical beds where these procedures were performed. Their blood is crying out for vengeance. If you read in the Word of God, blood always cries out for vengeance. And I believe their blood is going to be on this generation. they have killed their own offspring they don't even love their own offspring and it's it's embarrassing for people that are promoting the the mentality and the policies and the practices of Planned Parenthood because it's one of the the foremost sponsors of abortion clinics in the United States of America they're also the ones that that are championing the use of the the birth control pill, championed the use of the birth control pill for women. In fact, Margaret Sanger, according to her own daughter, Margaret Sanger's chief achievement or highest aspiration was the, the development of a birth control pill. And she saw that as the crowning achievement of her career. She, along with a doctor who was very immoral, They wanted to have this pill so that women could take this pill and they could engage in carnal activity without repercussions, with no responsibilities. And what's sad is many misguided, untaught Christians are aborting their own babies. And they may be marching in front of abortion clinics and say, I'm pro-life. But they're not altogether pro-life. They're just anti-abortion by standard abortion procedures. But they're not anti birth control. They still have the spirit of abortion in them. And brothers and sisters, this is the spirit of death. This is the spirit of loving death. The Bible says that those that hate me love death. And when you hate the wisdom of God and the Word of God, you love death. And you begin to spread death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm saying to you that... That God lifted up a standard in the days of Noah and he said as it was in the days of Noah so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man and people are simply given to pleasures and they're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God and according to 2 Timothy chapter 3 we're told that they will be without natural affection that means they will not even have the, the natural love for their own offspring and they will give them up to the world they'll sacrifice their sons and daughters at the altars and shrines of personal pleasure and personal convenience and they'll send them off to the government schools to be educated where they can indoctrinate them so that they'll grow up to be good citizens in the new global world order serving the Antichrist dutifully I'm telling you brothers and sisters God didn't leave Himself without testimony in the days of Noah when all flesh had corrupted itself, itself upon the face of the earth. And I believe that God is raising up testimony in this generation. Acts 14 says that God left, him not, his, left not Himself without witness or without testimony. Giving us rain from heaven and, filling our, and fruitful seasons, harvest joy. Fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with with food and gladness. That was God's natural revelation. That was God's benevolence displayed even to the Gentile world that knew not God. And yet God was, was giving witness to the fact that He was a benevolent God, that He wanted to establish communication and relationship with them. Even to sinners of the Gentiles. He didn't leave Himself without witness. Well, God doesn't leave Himself without testimony. He didn't in the days of Noah. He didn't in the days of Elijah. We heard about Elijah last Sunday in a very blessed message that edified me and challenged me. But in the days of Elijah, when Baalism was threatening to, to overrun Israel. In fact, it had become the dominant religion in Israel. and there, there was just a bare remnant. 7,000 who had not bowed their knees to the image of Baal. The rest of the Israelites were going along with Ahab and Jezebel religion. There were only 7,000, a remnant, a bare remnant, who had not bowed their knees to the image of Baal. And and God raised up a prophet from, from Gilead. He raised up a man by the name of Elijah. And his name, Eliyah, means my God is Yah." And so even his name stood as a standing rebuke uh, to the religious momentum of his day. And Elijah was a prophet of fire. And Elijah uh, had a regard for the supreme honor of God. And Elijah was sent to Ahab and he was a man of intercession and he told Ahab that there would not be rain or dew these years except by my word, First Kings 17 and verse 1. He was so close with God that he became the the medium through which God was mediating his work in Israel, his work of judgment. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain and rain not upon the earth by the space of three years and six months. Now you th- may think that's, that's terribly, terribly unkind and terribly insensitive of God's prophet to pray that uh, that region would be smitten with a three and a half year plague of drought. That's quite... Um, uh, a lack of <clears throat> of human compassion on his part but you see Elijah was not motivated by humanistic sentimentality in his prayers he was motivated by a supreme love and zeal for the honor of god alone and so he prayed in accordance with the will of god you see the holy spirit when he makes intercession through us brothers and sisters it it transcends our own natural sensibilities it is not emanating from any self-centered base in our uh, human understanding. It is coming, flowing clear as crystal from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and as we pray in the Holy Ghost, then then God is praying through us. And as we pray in the Spirit, with Spirit-led and Spirit-governed intercession, then many times we are praying uh, prayers that seem to be counterintuitive. They seem to be counter to our own carnal mind. Elijah prayed that there be no rain, and there was no dew. You see... Uh, the dews in Israel are quite heavy. It's uh, um, They have a, a season of very little rainfall. They have two seasons of heavier rainfall in the spring and the autumn. They have the early rains in autumn, and then they have the the latter rain in the spring that brings the crops to fruition. The early rain in autumn uh, softens the soil for, for plowing, and then the latter rain brings the growing crop to fruition. And both are essential to the agricultural cycle in Israel. But what is key to to agricultural productivity in Israel was the heavy dew. And and Elijah said there will be neither rain nor dew. No moisture in the ground for three and a half years. Can you imagine that? Everything was drying up. It was withering away. The vegetation was withering away. No pastures in the wilderness. God raised up a witness and he, this man whose name means my God is Yahweh was saying in effect, I'm leading the charge. I am the champion of Yahweh worship and I'm right raising up a standard and let him who has eyes to see, see and let him who has ears to hear, hear and let him that has an understanding take heed. That there's only one God, Yahweh, He is God. And then we know of His confrontation with the prophets of Baal there in 1 Kings 18 and how He doused the, the sacrifice with water three times and and even poured the water in the ditch, the little moat that was surrounding the altar and how the fire of God descended and consumed the sacrifice and licked up the water that was in the ditch there in the dust of that ditch that had been dug around the altar. And God proved before the amazed bystanders and onlookers that Yahweh, He was God. And then they bowed down and, and acknowledged, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, hu-ha-Elohim, in the Hebrew. Yahweh, hu-ha-Elohim. Hu-ha he is the God. The God means He's not just the generic God. He is the unique, only God. The only living God who answers by fire. So God raised up an Elijah in the days of encroaching Baalism during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. He raised up a Noah in the antediluvian generation. Uh, He raised up a Josiah. Uh, Josiah, who was in the days of his youth remembering his creator in the 7th century B.C. when the nation had veered off course and they were beginning to worship Baal and they were involved in syncretistic and vain worship. I remember Josiah there in this 621 B.C., the reform that began uh, in the life of this young man because he began to seek the Lord. God put it in the heart of a young man to begin to seek the Lord, and then he began to purge Judah of the infiltration of idolatry and Baalism and all of the imported vanities of the heathen. He began to purge out and they began to cleanse the temple in his day and age brothers and sisters because much leaven had been allowed to leaven the lump in the house of God and there was a purging and they found the book of God that had been discounted and overlooked or discarded and left and relegated to uh, a dustbin, so to speak but they found this book in the house of God and they began to read out of the book and they began to seek to uh, find their way back to God on the basis of what was written in the book. It was a book born revival and reform and Josiah was the leader of it. A man who sought God in the days of his youth and God raised him up for a generation such as that that had corrupted its way and that that had eyes to see but could not see and ears to hear but could not hear and he was seeking to go back to the old paths where is the good way to base all of their practices and and their religious expressions solely upon the biblical revelation alone. God raised up a Josiah in his day and age. And God was going to raise up these apostles, these disciples whom Jesus called apostles. He was going to raise them up. And he was going to use them to spread the gospel to the four corners of the globe. Brothers and sisters, how do you know How do you know that your salvation is not going to result in the salvation of your husband or wife? How do you know that your salvation is not going to result in the salvation of all of your children? How do you know that your salvation is not going to result in the salvation of many others because you are a steward of the mysteries of God, so to speak, and you're carrying in your bosom a hidden treasure, a treasure that God has placed in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of you. How do you know that there's not a stewardship committed unto you that God through your salvation is going to lead many other sons and daughters to glory? If we're willing to lift up a standard. But today we have the lowering of the standard, the weakening of the will, the dilution of the word of God in the church of Jesus Christ. That's why all manner of Corruption is rife in the house of God. We have the importation of, of the culture's corruption into the house of God, just as in the days of Josiah. We have all of this filth in the house of God. We have the idolatries and the love of self and the love of pleasure and the love of convenience and comfort and the lust, the lust of other things that have crept in and choked the preaching of the word of God in the house of God. And we have all of this, the idolatry of music. I believe people have an idolatry of music. People are so addicted to their music, young people especially. Don't get addicted to music. Learn to be alone with your thoughts. Learn to seek God in the days of your youth. It's good to worship the Lord and, and to sing unto the Lord, but that's talking about an individualized worship. I was sharing with my, my children, I hope I don't embarrass them by sharing this, but I was sharing with them this, I think you know, this morning. In family worship, I said, let's, let's just everybody raise your hands and let's just tell Jesus how much we love Him. Let's just worship Him. Glorify Him. You see, God is much more pleased with that than with four-part harmony. Now, I'm, saying, I'm not saying God isn't pleased with four-part harmony. That's good. It's good to sing in four-part harmony, to God. It's good to make melody to the Lord. But what I'm trying to say is God is much more pleased when you just open up your heart and you out there, You just raise your hands and you say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I worship you. Jesus, I praise you. I glorify you. I call that individual worship. In other words, it's emanating from the individual's heart. You can have that whether you sing four-part harmony or whatever kind of songs you sing, as long as they are glorifying God. Because it's coming out of your heart. You see, God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And you can know that you really have a relationship with God when you do that. Do you ever do that? I want to ask you something. That's a good barometer and gauge you can use to discover whether or not you have a relationship with God or whether or not your relationship with God, quote unquote, is based upon external religious form alone. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you ever, during the day, just say, Jesus, I love you? I glorify you, Jesus. I praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Do you ever say that? If you say no, Brother Bobby, to be honest, I don't say that. You don't have a relationship with Jesus. Except by religious form. You're here tonight, that's form. You sing the four-part harmony, that's a form. But you see, when you have heart, a bubbling, it's bubbling, it's bubbling in your heart and God is spirit and you, and you worship Him in spirit and in truth and you tell Him you love Him. You know, I'm sure my wife would appreciate if I give her grocery money, if I perform the, the round of duties that devolve upon a husband, if I'm there to conduct family worship and if I come home in the evenings and and try to Uh, make sure everything's in order or come home at mealtime. I'm sure that if I perform all of these duties that devolve upon a husband, that my wife is, is, you know, she's pleased with that. But you know, it means something special when I come up and I put my arm around her and say, sweetheart, I love you. That means something special. That shows we have a relationship that is based not merely upon external form and a round of duties that we perform. And Jesus appreciates that much more than any sinner, any human being does. He appreciates it when we just tell Him how much we love Him, that we glorify Him, we praise Him, and we honor Him. Do we do that? You know, I'm just going to be honest with you. You know, I don't get to sit out among you very often in in praise services, except occasionally, on a Sunday when Brother Joey's preaching, or Wednesday night, when someone else is filling in. But I've noticed that most of the praise is just waiting for the song leader to start the four-part harmony. I don't think that's the way it should be. Now, there are some who... who kind of lead out and express their love for the Lord. I appreciate that. But you see, brothers and sisters, if you love Jesus, you should be able to express it. expressly, Especially in a church where we're not ashamed to say amen. Especially in a church where we're not ashamed to raise our hands and to glorify the Lord and to worship God in spirit and truth. You should be able to express it there and say, Jesus, I love you. I worship you out loud. I mean, not that you're saying it to be heard or seen. Amen. But you're just saying it in a supernaturally natural and normal way because you love Jesus. If we have this relationship with Jesus Christ, God could be laying the groundwork. He could be raising up individuals that are going to become ambassadors in days to come. Ambassadors for Christ just as these disciples and apostles were going to be sent forth into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature. And they weren't going to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ because they had a relationship with Him. And He said in Matthew chapter 10, when He commissioned the 12, He said, what you hear in darkness, that proclaiming the light, and what you... Uh, hear what you hear in the ear that preach ye upon the housetops. In other words, I am not only giving you a word in due season for your own soul's sake. Yes, I am doing that, but I'm giving you a word in due season that it might be broadcast, that, that uh, the, the matter might be blazed abroad, that you might spread and go and spread this incorruptible seed of the Word of the Kingdom to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the desire of Jesus. So when he prays for this group, he's praying with anticipation for what God is going to do in a further manner in each and every one of their lives, that God was going to stabilize them, God was going to keep them from the influence of the world, uh, lest the influence of the world creep in and corrupt that which Christ had begun in their lives. He had begun a good work, and He will perform it to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. But He knew that if they were going to persevere to the end, if they were going to fulfill this high and holy calling wherewith they were called, that they were going to be in need of a sanctifying work that set them apart, Uh, from the influences of the world because to the extent that the spirit of the world was making contact with their spirits and their souls and their minds and their bodies to that extent they were going to become disqualified as His representatives and the work of God would be halted and their own personal salvation subverted. Jesus recognized that and so for this reason He lays Himself out in prayer that the work of God might not only be salvaged, but that it might receive impetus and that it might be carried through to completion. And brothers and sisters, it doesn't take place automatically. In our lives, it didn't take place automatically. In the lives of the apostles, it, it, it never has taken place automatically down through uh, church history. There always is a praying individual behind, somewhere hidden in a prayer closet, somewhere hidden in a base. Dark basement somewhere. Somewhere hidden in an attic bedroom. Kneeling by the bedside. Somewhere hidden there is a man or a woman whose heart God has burdened and they are praying in the Holy Ghost with Holy Ghost inspired intercession for the furtherance of the work of God. Somewhere there is a praying individual. People speak of the great revival fires that were kindled under the ministry of Charles Finney in the 19th century. They speak of those revival fires and how that I think it was like around 80% of his converts remained true to the Lord because he stressed a life of, of moral and ethical holiness in his presentation of the Gospel. But did you know that there was a man that followed him around? I think his name was Nash. There was a man that followed him around, who preceded his revivals, who would go into an area where he was going, uh, he was appointed to preach and who would groan and make intercession in the Holy Ghost for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon those meetings. And brothers and sisters, all of the fruitage, all of the works, all of the conversions and the reclamation of backsliders and the turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that took place, Uh, through that preaching of the gospel was the result of the Holy Spirit and power that attended the presence, the preaching of the gospel and that presence of the Spirit was the result of prayer so that the word came not into the people in word only but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. That's why we need to turn to prayer. We need to restore prayer to its rightful place in the house of God until the churches of Jesus Christ in the land be come havens in the last days and a place where men and women can go and pour out their hearts to God and lay hold upon God and stir up themselves to lay hold upon Him as remembrancers, as those who are placing God and putting God in mind of His covenant promises that He come through and that He stretch forth His hand in the midst of the years to heal that signs and wonders may be done by the name of of His holy child Jesus that the people of the world might once again know that there is a God in the church, that there's a head over the church and His name is Jesus, that the name of Jesus and the faith which is by Him might give men and women perfect soundness and the presence of all, that sinners might be converted to the Lord, uh, that God might instruct uh, us former sinners in the way of God more perfectly and teach and instruct former transgressors so that they know the way of the Lord and know how to walk so as to please Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the high calling of the church in this hour to pray as our Master prayed. He left us an example that we should follow in His steps. He prayed and and showed us how to pray and seeks to teach us how to pray in this day and hour so that God might further His work even in a people uh, such as this, even in a people that have their own sins and flaws and shortcomings as did the disciples that God might raise up a standard in our generation when the enemy is coming in like a flood that there might be a standard uh, and that there might be standard bearers who are going forth into the community brothers and sisters holding forth the word of life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and saying not only by their lips but through their lives and through the testimony of their character and conduct this is the way walk ye in it this is the way of new testament Christianity ere the lamp of God and the light of his truth go out in a sin darkened age God is raising up many women I believe that they are going to sound the trumpet in the last days and there's going to be a rallying around the truth of God I believe there's going to be a last day revival that God is going to pour out of His Spirit upon all flesh I don't believe we've seen the latter rain in its full force yet I believe that multitudes both of men and women are going to be added to the Lord and God's going to increase the numbers of disciples greatly I believe that the Holy Spirit can yet be poured out and that whoso whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord under the spirit of conviction shall be saved. But it all begins with prayer. It it all begins when the church ceases being a social playground and becomes a house of prayer. It all begins when men and women begin to take the the interest of God seriously. It all begins when we begin... To revisit the prayer closet. And bend those knees that may be arthritic. Maybe the arthritis will go out when you start bending them more in prayer. And seek the face of God while He may be found. I believe... There could be a stirring in the last days. You know, we talk about the end times. We talk about the perilous times. We talk about the dark times. We talk about uh, the Antichrist system. We talk about uh, the mystery of lawlessness. But you know what? The Bible does not give us a one-sided portrait of, of end-time activity in God's end-time program. Yes, the Bible includes that darkness, but it also shows that there's going to be a shining of great light in the midst of that darkness. It also teaches that there's going to be a remnant that is going to be spared. It also teaches that there are going to be individuals that are going to escape all these things that shall come to pass and stand before the Son of Man because they're watching and praying always. Luke 21 verse 36. It also teaches, brothers and sisters, that this gospel of the kingdom, Matthew chapter 24, is going to be preached unto all the world for a witness for a what? A witness. God's not going to leave himself without witness even in that dark hour. For a witness It's going to be preached into all the world for a witness. And then shall the end come. The Bible teaches that an innumerable company of Gentiles out of every nation, every tongue, every kindred, every people are going to be called up to meet the Lord. They're, they're, they're coming up. John sees them in John 7. And, and he says, who are these? And he says, these are they that that come up, that are coming up out of great tribulation. He sees them going up. Some believe they're resurrected. They're martyred and resurrected. Uh, or they're, they're being raptured. I personally believe there's a rapture in there. If, even if there is an, uh, an element of resurrection among that host, there's, there's also a catching up. He sees them coming up out of the great tribulation. They've been in the great tribulation. They're going to be saved an innumerable multitude. They're safe. Remnants out of the Gentiles. There's a, a, a remnant of Jews, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that are sealed and go through the tribulation period and the horrors of that period in their natural bodies and all of those plagues will have no power against them because they are sealed with the seal of God. That's also in Revelation 7. So what I'm saying is, there are positive elements, and we need to understand that, that, that God has a purpose for this church, because we could so dwell on the negative, we can think of all, you know, the Antichrist is coming, let's hide, you know, and, and I'm not saying God may not tell you to hide. I'm not saying that he hid Jeremiah, he hid David, and, and uh, many people, David hid in the cave from Saul, and... Many people have fled and had to flee from their persecutors. We're not saying that that's not part of God's plan, but you see, if we focus only on the negative, we lose sight of the positive good things that God is going to do in the last days. And Jesus, here He's approaching the cross. He's approaching the hour of darkness When Judas has betrayed him, delivered him over to his persecutors, and he's going to be led before Pontius Pilate and condemned and crucified on a cruel Roman cross. He's praying this. Brothers and sisters, he's praying this Thursday night. He was arrested this very evening after he prayed this. And he was taken before the authorities and condemned to die, scourged and led forth to be crucified. On Friday morning at 9 a.m. This is Thursday night when he's praying this. And you know what Jesus is envisioning? He's saying, yes, I'm sanctifying myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Yes, he knows the cross is in view. But what is he seeing here? He's seeing the expansion of the gospel of the kingdom into all the world. He says, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. He says, verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on Me through their word of test, through their word. He means their word of testimony. In other words, I'm not going to leave myself without witness, even though I'm going back to the Father, even though these are being left in unsympathetic, Christ-hating surroundings. He says, I'm going to raise up a standard of testimony through their lives and through their word of testimony that's going to reach to the uttermost parts of the earth. And after Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected the third day, ascended to God, He sent forth the promise of the Father. And when they were gathered together on that Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, 9 a.m. in the morning on Sunday morning, the Pentecost, you know, was a Sunday, Lord's Day. It was the 50th day after the Passover celebration. So you take seven, 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 day periods. Seven times seven is 49. Well, the eighth day, which is the first day of the week, was Sunday morning at nine o'clock, when they were gathered together praying on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day, the Holy Spirit came down. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And Peter stood up on that Pentecostal Sunday and he said, This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel that in the latter days it shall come to pass, saith God, that I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams and upon my servants and handmaidens I will pour out of my Spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And remember the words of our Lord in Acts 1, 5-8, while He assembled Himself with the early band of disciples for 40 days and instructed them and gave them commandments by the Holy Ghost. Do you remember what He told them? He said, Tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. For ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me. I'm not going to leave myself without witness, without testimony. Even though I'm going back to the Father, I'm making provision for ongoing testimony. He said, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea, in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, I have expansion in mind. I have uh, the broadcasting and the propagation and the perpetuation of the word and work of the kingdom on my heart. And through the Holy Spirit's power, this work that I have begun is going to be carried forth unto the the uttermost parts of the earth. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm simply saying that in the midst of all the bleak and the negative and the dark that there are good things to come for those who are filled with the Holy Ghost and are willing to pray for a core element and for a group of individuals of the a faithful few that refuse to defile their garments, who are sanctified, holy in spirit, soul, and body, and preserved and kept blameless unto the coming of the day of the Lord Jesus, that God is going to use them as instruments in His hands in these last days, and they're going to raise up a standard of testimony around which the remnant can rally. I want to close this morning with Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. John chapter 17, as we have said before, as it were, is an adumbration, a prefigurement of that more excellent ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, whereby He ever lives to make intercession for us and is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by Him. That's Hebrews 7, 25. But I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9 this evening. <clears throat> Here in this great book of contrast between the older covenant and the new covenant, we see that The high priesthood, the Melchizedekian high priesthood of Jesus Christ, has been introduced under the new covenant as a superior grade priesthood because he ever lives. He doesn't, there's no exchange, there's no passing on of his priesthood to some successor because he ever lives. He has the power of an endless life. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And I want you to note in particular, Verse 11. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come. Notice that phrase good things to come. We know John 16 says, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will show you things to come. Things to come. And we know the book of Revelation is a record of the things that shall be hereafter. Things to come. But notice this adjective here that qualifies the nature, that describes the nature of these things. He is the high priest of good things to come. I believe God has good things to come. Jesus, in the shadows of the cross, was envisioning good things to come. He was anticipating the spread of the gospel. He was anticipating the sanctification and the preservation of this group for whom he's praying as a core uh, nucleus. He was anticipating the word of testimony reaching to the uttermost parts of the earth and the, the witness being left unto all the world unto the end of time. He was anticipating good things to come. Jesus is ever living to make intercession, that He might save us completely, that He might sanctify us, that He might cause us to stand perfect and complete at every aspect of the Word of God and the will of God, Colossians 4.12, and He's praying that He might use us to perform good things in the future. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is say, not of this building. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats, and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I believe there are good things to come. I believe there's going to be many extended opportunities for witness in the days ahead. I believe there are going to be ample opportunities to serve the living God with fear and reverence by the grace of God. I believe that God is prepared in advance for this church's testimony to be expanded. I believe that as we pray in the Holy Ghost, that the expansionistic aims of the Holy Ghost will be given expression uh, through Spirit-inspired speech that will result in living waters beginning to flow from Sand Hill Bible Church, and wherever the waters flow, they will bring healing, they will bring good things to come, even in the midst of troubled times, even in the midst of perilous days, even in the midst of a gross darkness, great light will shine upon the people of God, and the glory of God will be seen upon them. Are you anticipating good things to come? Amen. You know, the book of Hebrews is emphasizing a better covenant established upon better promises. And it introduces an outlook of good things to come on the basis of Christ's intercession. We see His intercession in John 17. We read of His celestial Intercession in hebrews seven twenty five of his terrestrial in John seventeen. but he's praying, and he's praying, brothers and sisters, not only that you will be saved by the skin of your teeth, but he's saying, he's praying that you might be used, that you might become a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use that all of these good things that He's anticipating and He's envisioning as He prays at the right hand of the Father might be performed unto the uttermost. He's going to work all things after the counsel of His own will. And I believe that He is willing good things to come. Even in the latter days, that there will be a reviving of His work in the midst of the years. That God will resume His activity and we'll see Him save. Reclaim backsliders. Fill with the Holy Ghost those that are in need of the Holy Ghost. Go into the uttermost parts of the earth as a good and great and chief shepherd and apprehend those loved ones you've been praying for and bring them back to the fold of God safe and sound. I believe there are good things to come. Can you agree with me on that? And if we believe there shall be a performance of those things which have been told us, from the Lord. Luke 1, 45. Amen. If you want to find out the things that are commanded, we need John's gospel to be sure, but we need not to bypass or sidestep the implications of Matthew's gospel because there we have that huge block of material from Matthew 5 to the end of Matthew chapter 7 known as the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, there Jesus Christ tells us how his new covenant relates to the Old Testament commandments we see how his new covenant relates to the attitudes and the motivations of our heart. We see how that this new covenant brings a radical change in our disposition so that we become pure in heart and we become peacemakers and and we become those who hunger and thirst after righteousness and those who mourn because we're smitten by godly sorrow because our works have, have not been found perfect before God, and we have fallen short of the moral excellency of God's glory. All have sinned to come short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and verse 23. And so we, as we read through Matthew's Gospel, we see that Jesus says that we're to resist not evil. If anyone smites you on one cheek, to turn to them the other also. They try to smite you again and draw blood. We just turn to them the other also. And He said... Give to him that asketh of thee, and of him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. And if any man compel that he go one mile, go with him twain. Jesus teaches non-self-assertiveness. He teaches non-resistance. He teaches that we should not render evil for evil, but we should ever follow that which is good, as 1 Thessalonians likewise says, both among ourselves and to all men. Jesus teaches these principles. He says this is the, the essence of the Christian ethic I'm teaching you. And then at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us, after he mentions many things, uh, uh his teaching on marriage, we have His, his teaching on uh, personal moral purity, we have his, his teaching on false prophets, we have His teaching on discernment, by their fruits you shall know them, we have His teaching on the doctrine of two ways, uh, Matthew seven thirteen and 14, straight is the gate, it narrows the way that leads to life, and wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, we have His teaching on anger, we have His teaching on um, loving our enemies, you know, most people have difficulty ro- loving their own relatives. I found that in life that, that, that most people have difficulty loving their own relatives, much less their neighbors, but to love your enemies? Yes, Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Pray for it. Bless them and don't curse them. Uh, today... Well, you'll have a lawsuit on your hands. First, the people will will sue you over something they even perceived as uh, some attempt that to take advantage of you in the business world, even though the person may not have intended it. They'll sue you over this or that, simply to get money out of it. I mean, that's really I don't. That's a whole other realm. I don't want to get into that. But the the frivolous litigation that takes place today is. Um, borders on the ridiculous. It really does. But with a superabundance of lawyers, you know, they have to have something to do. Besides um, sitting on real estate closings. So what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is that we are living in a day and age when people, are their love is waxing cold. They hate one another. They despise one another. And, and sometimes it's their own relatives, Sometimes it's their neighbor, the person next to them, who lives next to them or sits next to them or who's uh, somehow associated with them at work. But to, and we're told to love our neighbors as ourselves. But Jesus says, I'm taking this a step beyond. It's not just loving your own friends and your own relatives. It's not just loving your neighbor as difficult at that, as that may be at times. He said, I'm telling you to love your enemies. That you might be perfected in love, and as your, he says in Matthew five forty eight, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now that doesn't mean that you have to agree with your neighbor, you have to agree with your enemy, that you have to endorse the policies of your enemy, that you have to you know, be like some of these pastors in the church, never take a stand for righteousness and truth and holiness, and never set the direction in the church, and never command and reprove and rebuke. With all long-suffering and doctrine, a lot of pastors think that's love. No, it isn't. It's just weakness, and the devil's going to roll, push you over like a steamroller before it's over and flatten you out for everybody to walk on, and and the cause of Christ will suffer damage. God's called pastors to be standard-bearers. They have a standard. They have a banner that is to be displayed because of the truth. They're ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, and they cannot afford to lower or to alter in any form the terms of their master. They represent somebody else. You see, they are men under authority. They're set under the authority of Christ who said all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, they don't have authorization to alter the terms of biblical conversion and salvation. They don't have any leeway to tamper with the truth of God's Word or to in any way adulterate it or minimize the importance of certain subjects in the Word of God. They have to not refrain or not shun to declare unto you all the counsel of God and keep back nothing that's profitable for you. That's a, that's a solemn calling that they have. You see, anybody that's truly called to preach, if they're truly called to preach, if they they will be equipped to preach, and with that equipment to preach will be a holy Love and zeal for the honor of God alone. And they will seek to speak not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God who tries their heart. So if the message they preach rebukes their family, they'll preach it anyway. If if it rebukes their relatives, they'll preach it anyway. If it rebukes uh, some favored element in the church, they'll preach it anyway. Because God's testing their heart to see if they love Jesus Christ more than any other consideration any other person or any other, any other um, uh, object that's set before them as perhaps uh, worthy of pursuit in the ministry. And so, do you love Jesus Christ more? That's the test of true leadership. Remember before Jesus sent out Peter, now I know He sent him out in the early days of His ministry, but I'm talking about before He sent him into post-resurrection ministry. What did Jesus ask Peter? Three times he asked him something. What did he ask him? He said, lovest thou me more than these? And then he said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. And so the call to be an overseer over the house of God and to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood, first of all, emanates from a... An exclusive love for Jesus Christ. A love that excludes all other considerations. And the reason why we have so much watered down Christianity, which is no Christianity, it's really just apostate Christendom. The reason why we have such watered down religion in the churches of our day is we have so few shepherds who love Jesus more than these. Who love Jesus Christ more than their life in this world who love Jesus Christ even more than the sheep. They love Him more than the sheep, and so they can feed the sheep and represent Him and be shepherds after His own heart and feed them with knowledge and understanding, as Jeremiah 3.15 says. We have so few today that are willing to take a stand and hold a standard and lift a standard up in in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of, of youth that are tempted and and uh, beset on the left hand and the right hand with youthful lust that they are to told to flee in Second 2 Timothy 2.22. We have so few that are willing to lift a standard, and that's why the church is caving in and capitulating to the surrounding culture, and there's a great influx of evil uh, from this present evil world that is tainting the testimony of the average church member. The reason why is because we have so few standard bearers. But I'm told in Isaiah 59, in verse 19, that when the enemy cometh in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. In the book of Genesis, chapter chapter 6 through 9, when all flesh had corrupted its way upon the face of the earth, when the... Sons of God went into the daughters of men and they produced these monstrosities of evil that were roaming the earth. And the earth was filled with violence. God raised up a standard through one man. He found righteous in His generation. He obtained grace. His name was Noah. See, God did not leave Himself without testimony in the midst of that corrupt, antediluvian world. God is always looking for a man. They may stand in the gap and lift a standard to make up the hedge in order to wall up the wall and keep the enemy from... Breaching the wall and coming in and infiltrating the people of God. And God raised up a Noah and God lifted up a testimony. And God lifted up a standard in that generation. And eight people, seven besides himself, rallied around that standard. And they followed Noah right into the ark that had been preparing for 120 years and He moved with fear and prepared an ark for the saving of His house and condemned the world through His faith because nobody else believed that there was going to be a deluge of rain. Nobody else believed that God was going to send judgment. They were eating and drinking and giving in marriage and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away according to Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus said, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, in the days just prior to the arrival of Jesus Christ, who will come as a thief in the night, and whose day shall overtake this globe as a snare, shall it come upon all the inhabitants of the earth. In the days preceding his arrival, men and women will have their minds enmeshed in mundane matters. They'll simply be eating and drinking and giving in marriage, and they will not care for spiritual interests. They will not care for a life of prayer. They will not care for a serious and in depth study of the Word of God. They'll lose their desire for spiritual interest. They'll no longer desire the sincere miracle of the Word of God that they might grow thereby. Of the love of the majority will wax cold in the midst of of this present evil age in which we live. We see that happening in our day and age. The people no longer even love their children. Their idea is that you just raise them up to their 18 and send them off to the world and let the world corrupt them. That's the idea. They want to get them out of their hair by the time they're 18 or earlier. Sometimes it's when they're six or five and six, they want to send them to kindergarten to get them out of the house. They don't have natural affection for even their own offspring. That's why they're aborting them. And we have 50 million plus babies that have been, have gone to an early grave in some garbage dump or some incinerator because of the lust of men that care not for their own offspring. And because of the machinations of an organization started by a wicked woman by the name of Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood is the organization. And by the way, you know what this is the anniversary of? This is 2010. In 1960, 50 years ago, the pill, the birth control pill, was approved for usage in the population of the United States of America. Now, it might have been used before that, but it was officially approved for usage. 50-year anniversary. How many babies have been aborted through the birth control pill? Did you know that, that <clears throat> some birth control pills are, are abortifacient? And there could be no guarantee that they aren't abortifacient. That means that they kill babies that have already been conceived in the womb. So if we talk about 50 million plus babies that have been, have been murdered by the standard procedures of abortion in the United States of America, how many babies have been aborted through the use of the birth control pill? 160 million? We don't know. But brothers and sisters, that blood is crying unto God. Out of the incinerators, out of the garbage dumps, out of the medical clinics, from the sheets of the medical beds where these procedures were performed. Their blood is crying out for vengeance. If you read in the Word of God, blood always cries out for vengeance. And I believe their blood is going to be on this generation. They have killed their own offspring. They don't even love their own offspring. And it's, it's embarrassing for people that are promoting the, the mentality and the policies and the practices of Planned Parenthood because it's one of the, the foremost sponsors of abortion clinics in the United States of America. They're also the ones that, that are champion, champion, championing the use of the, the birth control pill, champion, championed the use of the birth control pill for women. In fact, Margaret Sanger, according to her own daughter, Margaret Sanger's, chief achievement or highest aspiration was the, the development of a birth control pill. And she saw that as the crowning achievement of her career. She, along with a doctor who was very immoral, they wanted to have this pill so that women could take this pill and they could engage in carnal activity without repercussions, with no responsibilities. And what's sad is, many misguided, untaught Christians are aborting their own babies. And they may be marching in front of abortion clinics and say, I'm pro-life. But they're not altogether pro-life. They're just anti-abortion, by standard abortion procedures. But they're not anti-birth control. They still have the spirit of abortion in them. And brothers and sisters, this is the spirit of death. This is the spirit of loving death. The Bible says that those that hate me love death. And when you hate the wisdom of God and the Word of God, you love death. And you begin to spread death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm saying to you that... That God lifted up a standard in the days of Noah and he said as it was in the days of Noah so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man and people are simply given to pleasures and they're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God and according to 2 Timothy chapter 3 we're told that they will be without natural affection that means they will not even have the, the natural love for their own offspring and they will give them up to the world they'll sacrifice their sons and daughters at the altars and shrines of personal pleasure and personal convenience and they'll send them off to the government schools to be educated where they can indoctrinate them so that they'll grow up to be good citizens in the new global world order serving the Antichrist dutifully I'm telling you brothers and sisters God didn't leave Himself without testimony in the days of Noah when all flesh had corrupted itself itself upon the face of the earth. And I believe that God is raising up testimony in this generation. Acts 14 says that God left not not Himself without witness or without testimony. Giving us rain from heaven and and fruitful seasons, harvest joy, Fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with, with food and gladness. That was God's natural revelation. That was God's benevolence displayed even to the Gentile world that knew not God. And yet God was, was giving witness to the fact that He was a benevolent God, that He wanted to establish communication and relationship with them. Even to sinners of the Gentiles. He didn't leave Himself without witness. Well, God doesn't leave Himself without testimony. He didn't in the days of Noah. He didn't in the days of Elijah. We heard about Elijah last Sunday in a very blessed message that edified me and challenged me. But in the days of Elijah, when Baalism was threatening to to overrun Israel. In fact, it had become the dominant religion in Israel. There, were just, there was just a bare remnant, 7,000 who had not bowed their knees to the image of Baal. The rest of the Israelites were going along with Ahab and Jezebel religion. There were only 7,000, a remnant, a bare remnant, who had not bowed their knees to the image of Baal. And, and God raised up a prophet from, from Gilead. He raised up a man, by the name of Elijah. And his name, Eliyah means my God is Yah. And so even his name stood as a standing rebuke uh, to the religious momentum of his day. And Elijah was a prophet of fire. And Elijah uh, had a regard for the supreme honor of God. And Elijah was sent to Ahab, and he was a man of intercession, and he told Ahab, that there would not be rain or dew these years except by my word. 1 Kings 17 and verse 1. He was so close with God that he became the, the medium through which God was mediating His work in Israel, His work of judgment. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not upon the earth by the space of three years and six months. Now you may think that's, that's terribly, terribly unkind and terribly insensitive of God's prophet to pray that uh, that region would be smitten with a three and a half year plague of drought. That's quite um, uh, a lack of of human compassion on his part. But you see, Elijah was not motivated by humanistic sentimentality in his prayers. He was motivated by a supreme love and zeal for the honor of God alone. And so he prayed in accordance with the will of God. You see, the Holy Spirit, when He makes intercession through us, brothers and sisters, it it transcends our own natural sensibilities. It is not emanating from any self-centered base in our uh, human understanding. It is coming, flowing, clear as crystal from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And as we pray in the Holy Ghost, then then God is praying through us. And as we pray in the Spirit with Spirit-led and Spirit-governed intercession, then many times we are praying uh, prayers that seem to be counterintuitive. They seem to be counter to our own carnal mind. Elijah prayed that there be no rain and there was no dew. You see... Uh, the dews in Israel are quite heavy. It's uh, um, They have a, a season of very little rainfall. They have two seasons of heavier rainfall in the spring and the autumn. They have the early rains in autumn, and then they have the the latter rain in the spring that brings the crops to fruition. The early rain in autumn uh, softens the soil for for plowing, and then the latter rain brings the growing crop to fruition. And both are essential to the agricultural cycle in Israel. But what is key to to agricultural productivity in Israel was the heavy dew. And and Elijah said there will be neither rain nor dew. No moisture in the ground for three and a half years. Can you imagine that? Everything was drying up. It was withering away. The vegetation was withering away. No pastures in the wilderness. God raised up a witness and this man whose name means my God is Yahweh was saying in effect, I'm leading the charge. I am the champion of Yahweh worship and I'm raising up a standard and let him who has eyes to see, see and let him who has ears to hear, hear and let him that has an understanding take heed that there's only one god Yahweh he is God and then we know of his confrontation with the prophets of Baal there in 1st Kings 18 and how he doused the the sacrifice with water three times and and even poured the water in the ditch the little moat that was surrounding the altar and how the fire of God descended and consumed the sacrifice and licked up the water that was in the ditch there in the dust of that ditch that had been dug around the altar. And God proved before the amazed bystanders and onlookers that Yahweh, He was God. And then they bowed down and, and acknowledged, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, hu-ha-Elohim in the Hebrew. Yahweh, hu-ha-Elohim. Hu-ha he is the God. The God means He's not just the generic God. He is the unique Only God, the only living God, who answers by fire. (coughs) So God raised up an Elijah in the days of encroaching Baalism during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. He raised up a Noah in the antediluvian generation. Uh, He raised up a Josiah. Uh, Josiah, who was in the days of his youth remembering his creator in the 7th century B.C. when the nation had veered off course and they were beginning to worship Baal and they were involved in syncretistic and vain worship. I remember Josiah there in 621 B.C., the reform that began uh, in the life of this young man because he began to seek the Lord. God put it in the heart of a young man to begin to seek the Lord and then he began to purge Judah of the infiltration of idolatry and Baalism and all of the imported vanities of the heathen he began to purge out and they began to cleanse the temple in his day and age brothers and sisters because much leaven had been allowed to leaven the lump in the house of God and there was a purging and they found the book of God that had been discounted and overlooked or discarded and left and relegated to uh, a dustbin so to speak but they found this book in the house of God and they began to read out of the book and they began to seek to uh, find their way back to God on the basis of what was written in the book. It was a book born revival and reform and Josiah was the leader of it. A man who sought God in the days of his youth and God raised him up for a generation such as that that had corrupted its way and that that had eyes to see but could not see and ears to hear but could not hear and he was seeking to go back to the old paths whereas the good way to base all of their practices and, and their religious expressions solely upon the biblical revelation alone. God raised up a Josiah in his day and age. And God was going to raise up these apostles, these disciples whom Jesus called apostles. He was going to raise them up and he was going to use them to spread the gospel to the four corners of the globe. Brothers and sisters, how do you know? how do you know that your salvation is not going to result in the salvation of your husband or wife? How do you know that your salvation is not going to result in the salvation of all of your children? How do you know that your salvation is not going to result in the salvation of many others because you are a steward of the mysteries of God, so to speak, and you're carrying in your bosom a hidden treasure, a treasure that God has placed in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of you. How do you know that there's not a stewardship committed unto you that God through your salvation is going to lead many other sons and daughters to glory? If we're willing to lift up a standard. But today we have the lowering of the standard, the weakening of the will, the dilution of the Word of God in the church of Jesus Christ. That's why all manner of corruption is rife in the house of God. We have the importation of of the culture's corruption into the house of God, just as in the days of Josiah. We have all of this filth in the house of God. We have the idolatries and the love of self and the love of pleasure and the love of convenience and comfort and the lust, the lust of other things that have crept in and choked the preaching of the Word of God in the house of God. And we have all of this, the idolatry of music. I believe people have an idolatry of music. People are so addicted to their music. Young people especially. Don't get addicted to music. Learn to be alone with your thoughts. Learn to seek God in the days of your youth. It's good to worship the Lord and and to sing unto the Lord, but that's talking about an individualized worship. I was sharing with my... My children, I hope I don't embarrass them by sharing this. But I was sharing with them this—I think you know, this morning in family worship—I said, "Let's let's just everybody raise your hands and let's just tell Jesus how much we love Him. Let's just worship Him, glorify Him. You see, God is much more pleased with that than with four-part harmony. Now, I'm saying I'm not saying God isn't pleased with four-part harmony. That's good. It's good to sing a four-part harmony to God. It's good to make melody." To the Lord, but what I'm trying to say is, God is much more pleased when you just open up your heart and you, out there, you just raise your hands and you say, "Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I worship you. Jesus, I praise you. I glorify you." I'm that. I call that individual worship. In other words, it's emanating from the individual's heart. You can have that. Whether you sing four part harmony or whatever kind of songs you sing, as long as they are glorifying God. Because it's coming out of your heart. You see, God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And you can know that you really have a relationship with God when you do that. Do you ever do that? I want to ask you something. That's a good barometer and gauge you can use to discover whether or not you have a relationship with God or whether or not your relationship with God, quote unquote, is based upon external religious forms. Alone. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you ever, during the day, just say, Jesus, I love you. I glorify you, Jesus. I praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Do you ever say that? If you say no, Brother Bobby, to be honest, I don't say that. You don't have a relationship with Jesus. Except by religious form. You're here tonight, that's form. You sing the four-part harmony, that's a form. Form. But you see when you have heart, a oh, bubbling it's bubbling is bubbling in your heart, and God is spirit and you and you worship him in spirit and in truth, and you tell him you love him you know I'm sure my wife would appreciate if I give her grocery money, if I perform the the round of duties that devolve upon a husband if I'm there to conduct family worship, and if I come home in the evenings and and try to Uh, make sure everything's in order or come home at mealtime. I'm sure that if I perform all of these duties that devolve upon a husband, that my wife is, is, you know, she's pleased with that. But you know, it means something special when I come up and I put my arm around her and say, sweetheart, I love you. That means something special. That shows we have a relationship that is based not merely upon external form and a round of duties that we perform. And Jesus appreciates that much more than any sinner, any human being does. He appreciates it when we just tell Him how much we love Him, that we glorify Him, we praise Him, and we honor Him. Do we do that? You know, I'm just going to be honest with you. You know, I don't get to sit out among you very often in, in praise services, except. Occasionally on a Sunday when Brother Joey's preaching or Wednesday night when someone else is filling in. But I've noticed that most of the praise is just waiting for the song leader to start the four part harmony. I don't think that's the way it should be. Now there are some who who <clears throat> who kind of lead out and express their love for the Lord. I appreciate that. But you see, brothers and sisters, if you love Jesus, you should be able to express it. expressly, Especially in a church where we're not ashamed to say amen. Especially in a church where we're not ashamed to raise our hands and to glorify the Lord and to worship God in Spirit of Truth. You should be able to express it there and say, Jesus, I love you. I worship you out loud. I mean, not that you're saying it to be heard or seen. Amen. But you're just saying it in a supernaturally natural and normal way because you love Jesus. If we have this relationship with Jesus Christ, God could be laying the groundwork. He could be raising up individuals that are going to become ambassadors in days to come. Ambassadors for Christ just as these disciples and apostles were going to be sent forth into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature and they weren't going to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ because they had a relationship with Him and He said in Matthew chapter 10 when He commissioned the 12 He said what you hear in darkness that proclaiming the light and what you uh, hear what you hear in the ear that preach ye upon the housetops. In other words, I am not only giving you a word in due season for your own soul's sake. Yes, I am doing that, but I'm giving you a word in due season that it might be broadcast, that, that uh, the, the matter might be blazed abroad, that you might spread and go and spread this incorruptible seed of the word of the kingdom to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the desire of Jesus. So when he prays for this group, he's praying with anticipation for what God is going to do in a further manner in each and every one of their lives, that God was going to stabilize them. God was going to keep them from the influence of the world, uh, lest the influence of the world creep in and corrupt that which Christ had begun in their lives. He had begun a good work, and He will perform it to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. But He knew that if they were going to persevere to the end, if they were going to fulfill this high and holy calling wherewith they were called, that they were going to be in need of a sanctifying work that set them apart, Uh, from the influences of the world because to the extent that the spirit of the world was making contact with their spirits and their souls and their minds and their bodies, to that extent, they were going to become disqualified as His representatives and the work of God would be halted and their own personal salvation subverted. Jesus recognized that. And so for this reason, He lays Himself out in prayer that the work of God might not only be salvaged, but that it might receive impetus and that it might be carried through to completion. And brothers and sisters, it doesn't take place automatically. In our lives, it didn't take place automatically. In the lives of the apostles, it, it, it never has taken place automatically down through uh, church history. There always is a praying individual behind, somewhere hidden in a prayer closet, somewhere hidden in a basement, dark basement somewhere somewhere hidden in an attic bedroom kneeling by the bedside somewhere hidden there is a man or a woman whose heart God has burdened and they are praying in the Holy Ghost with Holy Ghost inspired intercession for the furtherance of the work of God somewhere there is a praying individual People speak of the great revival fires that were kindled under the ministry of Charles Finney in the 19th century. They speak of those revival fires and how that I think it was like around 80% of his converts remained true to the Lord because he stressed a life of moral and ethical holiness in his presentation of the gospel. But did you know that there was a man that followed him around? I think his name was Nash. There was a man that followed him around, who preceded his revivals, who would go into an area where he was going, uh, he was appointed to preach and who would groan and make intercession in the Holy Ghost for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon those meetings. And brothers and sisters, all of the fruitage, all of the works, all of the conversions and the reclamation of backsliders and the turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that took place uh, through that preaching of the gospel was the result of the Holy Spirit and power that attended the presence, the preaching of the gospel and that presence of the spirit was the result of prayer so that the word came not into the people in word only but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance that's why we need to turn to prayer we need to restore prayer to its rightful place in the house of God until the churches of Jesus Christ in the land become havens in the last days in a place where men and women can go and pour out their hearts to God and lay hold upon God and stir up themselves and lay hold upon him as remembrancers as those who are placing God and putting God in mind of his covenant promises that he come through and that he stretch forth his hand in the midst of the years to heal that signs and wonders may be done by the name of Uh, His holy child Jesus, that the people of the world might once again know that there is a God in the church, that there's a head over the church, and his name is Jesus, that the name of Jesus and the faith which is by him might give men and women perfect soundness and the presence of all, that sinners might be converted to the Lord, uh, that God might instruct uh, us former sinners in the way of God more perfectly, and teach and instruct former transgressors so that they know the way of the Lord and know how to walk so as to please Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the high calling of the church in this hour to pray as our Master prayed. He left us an example that we should follow in His steps. He prayed and and showed us how to pray and seeks to teach us how to pray in this day and hour so that God might further His work even in a people uh, such as this, even in a people that have their own sins and flaws and shortcomings as did the disciples that God might raise up a standard in our generation when the enemy is coming in like a flood, that there might be a standard uh, and that there might be standard bearers who are going forth into the community, brothers and sisters, holding forth the word of life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and saying, not only by their lips, but through their lives and through the testimony of their character and conduct, this is the way, walk ye in it, this is the way of New Testament Christianity. Ear the lamp of God in the The light of His truth go out in a sin-darkened age. God is raising up many women. I believe that they are going to sound the trumpet in the last days, and there's going to be a rallying around the truth of God. I believe there's going to be a last day revival that God is going to pour out of His Spirit upon all flesh. I don't believe we've seen the latter rain in its full force yet. I believe that multitudes, both of men and women, are going to be added to the Lord, and God's going to increase the numbers of disciples. Greatly, I believe that the Holy Spirit can yet be poured out, and that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord under the spirit of conviction shall be saved. But it all begins with prayer. It, it all begins when the church ceases being a social playground and becomes a house of prayer. It all begins when men and women begin to take the interest of God God seriously. It all begins when we begin to revisit the prayer closet and bend those knees that may be arthritic. Maybe the arthritis will go out when you start bending them more in prayer. And seek the face of God while He may be found. I believe there could be a stirring in the last days. You know, we talk about the end times, we talk about the perilous times, we talk about the dark times, we talk about uh, the Antichrist system, we talk about uh, the mystery of lawlessness, but you know what? The Bible does not give us a one-sided portrait of, of end-time activity in God's end-time program. Yes, the Bible includes that darkness, but it also shows that there's going to be a shining of great light in the midst of that dark. It also teaches that there's going to be a remnant that is going to be spared. It also teaches that there are going to be individuals that are going to escape all these things that shall come to pass and stand before the Son of Man because they're watching and praying always. Luke 21 verse 36. It also teaches, brothers and sisters, that this gospel of the kingdom, Matthew chapter 24, is going to be preached unto all the world for a witness for a what? A witness. God's not going to leave himself without witness even in that dark hour. For a witness is going to be preached into all the world for a witness. And then shall the end come. The Bible teaches that an innumerable company of Gentiles out of every nation, every tongue, every kindred, every people are going to be called up to meet the Lord. They're, they're, they're coming up. John sees them in John 7 and, and he says, who are these? And he says, these are they that, that come up, that are coming up out of great tribulation. He sees them going up. Some believe they're resurrected, they're martyred and resurrected uh, or they're, they're being raptured. I personally believe there's a rapture in there if, even if there is an, uh, an element of resurrection among that host. There's, there's also a catching up. He sees them coming up out of the great tribulation. They've been in the great tribulation. They're going to be saved in innumerable multitude. They're saved. Remnants out of the Gentiles. There's a a, a remnant of Jews, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that are sealed and go through the tribulation period and the horrors of that period in their natural bodies and all of those plagues will have no power against them because they are sealed with the seal of God. That's also in Revelation 7. So what I'm saying is there are positive elements and we need to understand that, that, that God has a purpose for this church because we could so dwell on the negative. We can think of all, you know, the antichrist is coming, let's hide, you know. And, and I'm not saying God may not tell you to hide. I'm not saying that he hid Jeremiah, he hid David and and uh, many people. David hid in the cave from Saul and Many people have fled and had to flee from their persecutors. We're not saying that that's not part of God's plan, but you see, if we focus only on the negative, we lose sight of the positive good things that God is going to do in the last days. And Jesus, here He's approaching the cross. He's approaching the hour of darkness When Judas has betrayed him, delivered him over to his persecutors, and he's going to be led before Pontius Pilate and condemned and crucified on a cruel Roman cross. He's praying this. Brothers and sisters, he's praying this Thursday night. He was arrested this very evening after he prayed this. And he was taken before the authorities and condemned to die, scourged and led forth to be crucified on Friday morning at 9 a.m. This is Thursday night when He's praying this. And you know what Jesus is envisioning? He's saying, yes, I'm sanctifying Myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Yes, He knows the cross is in view. But what is He seeing here? He's seeing the expansion of the Gospel of the Kingdom into all the world. He says, as Thou hast sent Me into the world, even so have I also sent them. Into the world. He says, verse 20, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their Word of test, through their word, he means their word of testimony. In other words, I'm not going to leave myself without witness, even though I'm going back to the Father, even though these are being left in unsympathetic, Christ-hating surroundings. He says, I'm going to raise up a standard of testimony through their lives and through their word of testimony that's going to reach to the uttermost parts of the earth. And after Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected the third day, ascended to God, he sent forth the promise of the Father. And when they were gathered together on that Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, 9 a.m. in the morning, on Sunday morning, the Pentecost, you know, was a Sunday, Lord's Day. It was the 50th day after the Passover celebration. So you take seven, seven, seven day periods. Seven times seven is 49. Well, the eighth day, which is the first day of the week, was. Sunday morning at 9 o'clock when they were gathered together praying on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day, the Holy Spirit came down. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And Peter stood up on that Pentecostal Sunday and he said, This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel that in the latter days it shall come to pass, saith God, that I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams and upon my servants and handmaidens I will pour out of my Spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And remember the words of our Lord in Acts 1, 5-8, while He assembled Himself with the early band of disciples for 40 days and instructed them and gave them commandments by the Holy Ghost. Do you remember what He told them? He said, Tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. For ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. I'm not going to leave myself without witness, without testimony. Even though I'm going back to the Father, I'm making provision for ongoing testimony. He said, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea, in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, I have expansion in mind. I have uh, the broadcasting and the propagation and the perpetuation of the word and work of the kingdom on my heart. And through the Holy Spirit's power, this work that I have begun is going to be carried forth unto the the uttermost parts of the earth and so brothers and sisters I'm simply saying that in the midst of all the bleak and the negative and the dark that there are good things to come for those who are filled with the Holy Ghost and are willing to pray uh, for a core element and for a group of individuals of the faithful few that refuse to defile their garments, who are sanctified holy in spirit, soul and body and preserved and kept blameless under the coming of the day of the Lord Jesus, that God is going to use them as instruments in His hands in these last days and they're going to raise up a standard of testimony around which the him that can rally I want to close this morning with Hebrews the book of Hebrews John chapter 17 as we have said before as it were is an adumbration a prefigurement of that more excellent ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father whereby He ever lives to make intercession for us and is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by Him. That's Hebrews 7.25. But I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9 this evening. Here in this great book of contrast between the older covenant... And the New Covenant. We see that the High Priesthood, the Melchizedekian High Priesthood of Jesus Christ, has been introduced under the New Covenant as a superior grade priesthood because he ever lives. He doesn't there's no exchange, there's no passing on of his priesthood to some successor because he ever lives. He has the power of an endless life. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And I want you to note in particular, verse 11, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come. Notice that phrase, good things to come. We know John 16 says, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will show you things to come. Things to come. And we know the book of Revelation is a record of the things that shall be hereafter. Things to come. But notice this adjective here. That qualifies the nature. That describes the nature of these things. He is the high priest of good things. To come, I believe God has good things to come. Jesus, in the shadows of the cross, was envisioning good things to come. He was anticipating the spread of the gospel. He was anticip- anticipating the sanctification and the preservation of this group for whom He's praying as a core uh, nucleus. He was anticipating the word of testimony reaching to the uttermost parts of the earth and the, the witness being left unto All the world unto the end of time. He was anticipating good things to come. Jesus is ever living to make intercession. That He might save us completely. That He might sanctify us. That He might cause us to stand perfect and complete at every aspect of the Word of God and the will of God. Colossians 4.12 And He's praying that He might use us to perform good things in the future. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is say, not of this building. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I believe there are good things to come. I believe there's going to be many extended opportunities for witness in the days ahead. I believe there are going to be ample opportunities to serve the living God with fear and reverence by the grace of God. I believe that God is prepared in advance for this church's testimony to be expanded. I believe that as we pray in the Holy Ghost, that the expansionistic aims of the Holy Ghost will be given expression uh, through Spirit-inspired speech that will result in living waters beginning to flow from Sand Hill Bible Church, and wherever the waters flow, they will bring healing, they will bring good things to come, even in the midst of troubled times, even in the midst of, of perilous days, even in the midst of a gross darkness, great light will shine upon the people of God, and the glory of God will be seen upon them. Are you anticipating good things to come? Amen. You know, the book of Hebrews is emphasizing a better covenant established upon better promises. And it introduces an outlook of good things to come on the basis of Christ's intercession. We see His intercession in John 17. We read of His celestial Intercession in Hebrews 7:25 of his terrestrial in John 17, but he's praying and he's praying, brothers and sisters, not only that you will be saved by the skin of your teeth, but he's saying he's praying that you might be used, that you might become a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use that all of these good things that He's anticipating and He's envisioning as He prays at the right hand of the Father might be performed unto the uttermost. He's going to work all things after the counsel of His own will. And I believe that He is willing good things to come, even in the latter days, that there will be a reviving of His work in the midst of the years, that God will resume His activity and we'll see Him save. Reclaim backsliders. Fill with the Holy Ghost those that are in need of the Holy Ghost. Go into the uttermost parts of the earth as a good and great and chief shepherd and apprehend those loved ones you've been praying for and bring them back to the fold of God safe and sound. I believe there are good things to come. Can you agree with me on that? And if we believe there shall be a performance of those things which have been told us, from the Lord. Luke 1.45. Amen.